Hello again, friends, and welcome to the August episode of Access City Hall on the Madison City Channel. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. Well, until they produce consumer-grade jetpacks or perfect the technology for teleporters, if you need to get around town, you've really only got five options. You can walk, you can bike, you can call a cab or a vehicle masquerading as something else. You can drive a private vehicle or you can take the bus. And if your primary means of transportation is one of the last two, you have dialed us up at the right time because transit and parking are the topics on the table for today with our guests Chuck Camp, the general manager for Metro Transit, and Gary Paulson, the citizen chair of the Madison Transit and Parking Commission. Gentlemen, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you. Let's start with uh, the most recent news. The state has adopted a budget. Uh, Chuck, did it do anything to us? Did it do anything for us? What, how did Metro Transit uh, make out in the most recent state budget? We did pretty well. Uh, several years ago, there was a 10% cut in transit operating assistance, and that was a real setback. This particular year, 2015, we had a 4% cut, and there was some concern there'd be a, or excuse me, a 4% increase, and there was concern that this next biannual budget would take us back further, and it didn't. It kept us whole, so we at least have fairly stable state funding for the next two years, which is really important for us. Which means what in real dollars? Well, it means about 16 or $17 million. In fact, the state is still the number one contributor to our operating budget at about 32 or 33% of our $55 million budget. It used to be 42%. So in the long run, there's been cutbacks in state funding. This particular budget, we're going to stay fairly steady. And what about federal funding? Federal funding for transit also has been cut back, and even more importantly, it has lacked stability. We used to get six-year reauthorization bills that we could plan ahead for our bus capital program, for other capital programs. We now have one-year-at-a-time, two-year-at-a-time reauthorization bills. Gone are the days that we had discretionary funding since the bridge to nowhere in Alaska where everyone viewed discretionary funding as bad. In Wisconsin, we used the discretionary funding to make up for this difference. We are about 2% of the population in the United States, and the discretionary funding allowed us to bridge the gap in the formula funding that only gave us 1% of federal transit funding, we used the discretionary funding to bridge the gap, and instead of a bridge to nowhere, it was buses to everywhere. With the lack of that discretionary funding, we've had to look for new sources, so federal funding has actually been more of a concern recently. So how does the funding for the overall $55 million break out? If you were doing a pie chart, the 32 or 33 percent state funding, if you looked at the federal operating assistance that we're allowed to use for uh, paying for mechanic salaries and parts to maintain our assets, that's viewed as an allowable federal funding. That's about 12%. Brings us up to 45%. Fares cover about 25%, so that brings us up to about 70 And the rest is covered by local units of government and fare box and advertising. That's how we pay the bill. Now, Gary, from the, what authority does the Transit and Parking Commission have in terms of any of those revenue sources. Do you have the authority to, to set bus fares? We do have the authority uh, to set fares, and uh, among other things, including routes and schedules and things like that. So, uh, uh, but we do not have a direct input into the budget of the city of Madison for that local share. The city of Madison, city council, and the mayor set that budget, but we can impact it by, you know, 
hypothetically switching fares and, and raising fares and uh, covering gaps if need be. Well, how, how does the budgeting process work if – I'm unclear. Where, where does the city, the city council and the mayor's authority and the TPC authority to set that revenue component interface? We're going to take a stab at that because there was a real example in 2009 where the city council passed a budget that assumed a certain amount of a fair increase. At that time, the TPC passed a fair increase that would only have brought us to a half of that revenue level. So our budget was out of balance on January 1, 2009. So the Common Council, on a very rare occasion, decided to step in and uh, basically overruled the Transit and Parking Commission on the fare change. It was a very contentious issue, but it's also a very rare issue. That happened six years ago. There have, not, there have been no examples of that since. Did, did the TPC, in anticipation of the state budget, start making any contingency plans on, on what could happen if the, if the state continued to, to cut back? No, we're, we're sort of <laughs> kind of behind you know, the the game. I mean, the, the state budget will be set. Chuck will know the numbers. City budget comes this fall. Um, you know, if, if in fact we had to raise fares, for example, to somehow take care of a gap, you know, that would be later in the fall, perhaps even later than that in the, into late 2015. So, I mean, it, in, in theory, we could do that. We could uh, tackle that. But I think you know Chuck will know his numbers, and uh, and he is often very good about relating what the situation is for Madison Metro vis-a-vis the, the the revenue revenue side of the uh, ledger. What do you expect will happen with fares in the next budget? Are they going to hold steady, or are they going to have to increase them? My guess is that they will hold steady. One of the things that we did as policymakers, transit uh, commission members, common council members back in 2007 and 2008, we're looking at the cutbacks in state funding. And another destabilizing aspect is they said, Metro, you need to set a contingency fund. At the time, it was close to zero. Over those years, we have steadily built up so that out of a $55 million budget today, we have a $5 million contingency fund. In the event that there was any sudden cut in state or federal funding, that contingency fund is really designed to help us deal with that over a year or two, whether we increased fares, whether we changed to allow for more advertising on the bus, whether there were service changes. That contingency fund gives us a little time to talk to the Transit Commission sure. and to decide what to do. And, for, and from my perspective, being on the commission now over years, this time I was on, on the commission as an alder back in the turn of the century, um, I think maybe there comes a point where we may want to uh, convene a small group of TPC and look at the fares in, for the future, you know, just the whole schedule rather than maybe, one, you know, some of uh, the passes when we needed it to, to raise for additional service to say Owl Creek, maybe a comprehensive review of the fares and have maybe a long-range uh uh, idea about where we want to go with fares, uh, and of course, uh, you know, the budgets impact where that goes. If 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 things solidify and the federal government gets its act together, maybe we, you know that planning doesn't have to take place right away. But I, I'm envisioning something like that taking place in the near future. Now, have you put on a nickel surcharge, or will you put on a nickel surcharge on certain pass holders to pay for Wi-Fi? 
No, that decision was rescinded. Uh, the Common Council approved a small fare change for unlimited ride pass holders, a nickel, and with that revenue, we would invest both in the infrastructure for putting Wi-Fi on buses and it would have paid the monthly uh, charges to uh, providers. When we started to do the more detailed analysis, and quite frankly, we started to talk to some of our partners at the UW, at Epic, and elsewhere, over the last two or three years, Epic, uh, Wi-Fi has gone from being a hot commodity on transit buses to uh, it's it's available in other mechanisms through their mobile services, through other devices where they carry on their own portable Wi-Fi. So we said with that reality and the second reality where the city is looking at Wi-Fi across the city, that perhaps we should hold off and not do this. And then we took to the Transit Commission a recommendation not to impose that fare increase. They agreed, so that is postponed indefinitely. So even though it was in the adopted Transit Development Plan, Events overtook the planning, and you decided to, to well, step back. Sure. I think you know it's you know my experience with government. Sometimes we're a little bit slow in getting the, the latest greatest thing. And and I you know when I first got back on the TPC, part of our long range report was to have that. And and technology has changed, as Chuck indicated, that people are using handheld mobile devices and. And it really isn't maybe as important now to have someone open up their laptop, and especially if buses are crowded, you're not going to be able to do that. So the Wi-Fi may not be as necessary as we thought it was eight years ago. Really, the only people who won't be able to use their mobiles are people with iPads or, or tablets that are Wi-Fi only. If you've got yeah, a right. smartphone, it's going to be an LTE sure, you, or 4G. You know more about the technology you're, you're than exactly. yeah. yeah, Correct. Um, it wasn't a matter of the budget, but the state did do something that uh, affected a matter that we talked about last time you were on last mm -hmm. year, which was what I referred to as uh, vehicles for hire masquerading as non-cabs, sure. um, the, trans the transit uh, network uh, <laughs> companies. Yeah. Apparently, if you have an app, it's not the same as a dispatcher. The state has stepped in and decided that we have to accept Uber and Lyft. Yep, and they preempted local control over this aspect, uh, as they have in many other areas. And, uh, you know, I, I, I frankly, I, you know, the taxi cabs come to us because we regulate them too. And, but we haven't heard much lately about that intrusion into the marketplace. So I, I'm sure it's going on. Uh, they, they can be visible now and, and, uh. Is, is there going to be any city regulation, any accounting, any, way of, of knowing who the drivers are, how many they are, what their activities are, is, or is this all going to be between and them and their apps? I, I think so. I, you know, it just, it, it, it's very, I, uh, it, if, you know, in a way frightening because, I mean, there were some instances where there were reported assaults and the companies would not give the police department who is investigating a crime the name of the driver. The, you have to get a court order, they, they told the, our, our investigators, which I think is absurd. I mean, you're investigating a crime. You need to help the authorities. So, the, you know, this uh, intrusion by the state, I think, is was unwarranted, and it, it's very harmful. Uh, let's look at, at uh, some of the things that were in the adopted 2013-2017 uh, Transit Development Plan, where we're right in the middle of it. Uh, we've already talked about one decision that was in that plan that's, that's been rescinded regarding uh, the surcharge for the Wi-Fi. Uh, another thing you had 
was to adopt a bus stop consolidation program to remove certain bus stops. Uh, you just the TPC just voted to remove a stop on State Street at uh, the top of State Street. You've removed you've proposed to remove some stops on Jennifer and, and Gorham and Monroe and Johnson. Are you surprised at how controversial? This development, when you're actually implementing a decision that was made three and four years ago to find out, wait a minute, we told you we were going to do this three years ago, and now you're, and now you're upset. I would say not really in that uh, when I first arrived in Madison in 2006, not realizing how, how personal the transit system is here for folks, which is actually a good news thing, we were looking at a stop on King Street, uh, that was being reduced, and it took us four Transit and Parking Commission meetings to work through that decision. And that was my first foray into understanding this takes time and was a contributing factor to say, if we're doing this five-year plan, I would like to have help from our regional folks at the NPO, the Metropolitan Planning Organization, to advise us, is this a good idea? Has it been done elsewhere? The anecdotal evidence I had is that a lot of systems like us where ridership is booming are having a hard time keeping buses on schedule. That was certainly the case for us, particularly at our transfer points. By the time our buses get through the square and the isthmus, we were seeing late arrival times at transfer points so that people weren't able to make their connections. This bus, bus stop consolidation project was a way to address that. Um, it has worked in some areas like Johnson and Gorm. We had some success, not without controversy, at Livingston, where we overlooked the Yahara House needing to have a stop out front there, and we modified our proposal. But the uh, stops on Johnson and Gorm have been consolidated to every other block instead of every block. We were unsuccessful in Jennifer. Um, that happens. We've started to look at Turner Avenue. We've actually had pretty good feedback there. We've modified our proposal. I see this as something that as we learn each neighborhood and work with each alder, there are going to be some spots where we're able to do this and some that we're not. But to comply with this plan, we're going to try as best we can. You should have known that you wouldn't get it on Jennifer Street. You just should have known that. You remember the 6th District, Gary. You, you know what it's like. It's contentious at, you know, at the very least. Um, and I, I think for my... Involved. We, could, we consider them involved. Involved. I'm sorry. I used the wrong term. Um, and, the, you know, for a member of the TBC uh, over the years, I mean, almost every metro decision, there, there's, there's a personal aspect. There is some rider that is affected by a change in schedule, for example, or we start later because the bus really isn't a, a big producer as far as, as trips uh, revenue uh, uh, for that particular trip. And so, you know, we hold hearings, and that's the purpose of this commission is, is to make sure that the public is aware of things and can speak to us. But all these decisions, almost every one of them, there's someone that is personally affected by that decision. And sometimes uh, that swings the vote, maybe at TPC. Sometimes it doesn't. But they're, they're all very personal and heartfelt stories that we hear. And, and why remove the one on State Street? Was that, was that a transit that, issue or of safety well, and, it, and society uh, is, is, It was presented to us not, it wasn't a metro initiative. It was presented to us by the downtown alder and the uh, downtown coordinating committee, which has sort of a authority over 
you know, State Street and, and uh, uh, the Capitol area. Um, there were issues concerning people using that particular stop at, uh, as a uh, station to do uh, drugs and other nefarious things. And uh, and after hearing the testimony by the people, and we, we only had one or two people that spoke uh, about you know, the the idea that uh, we need to deal with the homeless in a different way, which is true. Uh, the I think the TPC was convinced that we should remove it, but I think there is a maybe a later uh, situation to this, and the mayor is asking us to look at it again. I would just say on the transit side, while we did not take the lead when we're involved with other city departments, we looked at it as an opportunity to deal with improved schedule reliability for probably over a dozen bus routes that go through there, including my bus route every morning on the number three, that stops at that particular stop and then stops again in front of uh, West Washington and then stops again before Carroll and then stops again before MLK, that is adding more time than the typical distance of that length to meeting our transfer point reliability. So we have been looking at ways, how do we get through the State Street and Square corridor where we're serving everybody, but we can get through there maybe in a more timely manner. In that particular case, we supported the decision because there's a shelter 250 feet away that we don't use for those buses coming to the top of the state, but we can. In other words, instead of stopping right there, we get through the light and we just stop around the corner 250 feet away. It eliminates a stop. It has a shelter that's larger than the one on state, and it has real-time information that's tied into our bus apps. So really for passengers, it was a better amenity and so from a reliability standpoint, Metro supported that, but we did not take the lead in the decision. And on that happy and successful note, we're going to take a short <laughs> pause for the cause. We'll be back with more with Chuck Camp, the general manager of Met Madison Metro, and Gary Paulson, the chair of the Transit and Parking Commission. It is the August episode of Access City Hall on the Madison City Channel. Please stay with us. <laughs> If I ride, I will know the way the trees smell after the rain. I will grow a heart so strong that hospitals will take Tuesdays off. If I ride uphill, I will eventually get to ride downhill. That's how it works. If I ride, my breath will fill the air instead of smoke and car exhaust. If I ride, road rage will turn into laughter. And I won't be a boy or a girl. I will just be a rider. If I ride, I will be strong. It could cost you around $10,000. You'll face major legal fees, major fines, and steep insurance penalties. 
you could lose everything. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving. Because buzz driving is drunk driving. Welcome back to the August episode of Access City Hall on the Madison City Channel. I'm still Stu. You're still you. We're still talking about transit and parking with Chuck Camp, the general manager of Madison Metro, and Gary Paulson, the chair of the Transit and Parking Commission. Uh, Gary, let's talk about parking for, for a moment, particularly the parking very close to where we are speaking now. We're in room 260 of the Madison Municipal Building, and just on the other side of that wall, there may someday be a Judge Doyle Square development, which may feature lots and lots of parking, some of it to replace the government east lot, which has about 525 spaces, and some of it, as is currently proposed, for exact sciences. Now, I should say before we go any further in the matter of disclosure, um, I'm a shareholder of uh, exact sciences, so I'm all in favor of the company doing well. But do they really need 600 parking spaces reserved for themselves at uh, when they're only proposing a couple hundred employees to start with? Uh, do they need it? I, you know, I, my, my reaction is, uh, to, to maybe take a step back, is that we absolutely need to replace the, the city's government east parking facility. It's, it's the oldest one in, in the system. It has many repairs, which we continue to put money in just to keep it open. And it seems to me like it's, it's wasted money. So we, the, the parking, uh, utility has held fire and, and went along with uh, the possible redevelopment of this area. We, you know, we want to be part of the team on this. Uh, just as a, you know, the, the TPC really has gotten just some general uh, information about JDS, Judge Doyle Square. From a personal reaction, it, I don't understand why that number is that high at this point. Obviously, you need to build at one time you just you know it's just it's crazy to build half a parking garage and then come back uh, a few years later when the the employees do merit the number of uh, uh, spots but i think the and if the city's involved why not let the city use the extra spots use the revenue until um, the uh, exact sciences really needs the number of spaces it seems you know, and again, they're in negotiation, so there's, there are things behind the scenes that uh, obviously I wouldn't be aware of, even as chair of the Transit and Parking Commission. Well, part of the, oh, this gets to a, a jurisdictional question. Part of the proposal involves using some of the parking utilities' revenue f on this project. Right. The, 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 well, the government east could be paid for by the reserves of the parking utility. We have enough funding to do that. Uh, what I understood was that uh, there was also going to be use, uh, use of TIF money to help build the additional parking, which is not permissible uh, under state law, um, but it also could be used for the city's use for building a parking ramp, and we have many aging ramps right now. But, but when it comes to using the parking utilities' revenue, or parking utilities' um, reserves, sure, right. the TPC serves as the parking utility. Can you, tell, can you say to the city, no, we're, we're not going to give you $20 million for that because it's a bad deal for us because it's going to be competition, it's going to undercut us, and, and you've got to renegotiate that. Do you have, does the TPC have the authority <coughs> 
to tell the city, no, you can't have that $20 million out of our reserves? Without doing a lot of uh, research or haven't done it, uh, the research, I think we probably could say that, that the funds that we have generated for the parking utility need to be used by the uh, parking utility in its own facility. I think we could do that. But, again, this is part of a larger development, a lot of moving parts that haven't been settled on. And so whether whether that's a posture that the TPC will take, I really don't know at this time. As a former alder, what would you think about a citizen commission doing something like that and saying, you've got this $100 million project, you're gonna be, you've got a plan that's going to bring... 800 uh, high, well-paid employees to the square, and this citizen commission is saying no to a critical part of that. What do, you, what do you think the public reaction to that would be? I think it would be pretty strong, and I think there'd probably be some new members on that commission. <laughs> yeah. well, Mayor Seidlin being the kind who would not take something like that lightly? Very, very much so. I, yeah. I think he, you know, he's, he's very involved yeah. in this particular development, and I think, um, again, if... I think what what there has been because it's such a rush uh, a hurried negotiation, and I think the, a number of TPC members feel that you know we're kind of at the tail end of everything, and so and I, I kind of understand that there needs to be a, kind of a hurried aspect to this, but I think I think providing us more information, more uh, briefings would be very advisable. I think, uh, you know, I think most of us want to see this area developed. There's a lot of potential here and a lot of good things for the city as far as um, tax revenue, property tax revenue increases. Something that won't be hurried, however the, the negotiations shake out, if in fact a project goes through, is that Government East lot will be out of commission for 18 months. Yeah, and that's a big problem, a big worry. Um, uh, originally, when the, the first round of of developer interest in the area there was some talk about you know building new parking on the one block and then having that ready to be open and then tearing down government east so there wouldn't be any kind of you know bridge of of 18 months or whatever that there'd be no parking that that ramp is one of our busiest ramps it its occupancy is around 80 85% which is probably optimal for a ramp uh, I'm not sure what people will do if those spots aren't available for 18 months. You know, on a daily basis for you know people coming down for services, uh, meeting their attorneys, whatever. Not to mention the uh, fun aspects of our city, like concerts on the square, art fair. Where are people going to park? I mean, we're t if it's 80% capacity, we're talking 400 cars more or less uh, on a day, at they, any particular time. Exactly. Not being able to park there. Exactly. Where do they go? Where do they go? And that it's has like a bus, is that right, Chuck? Is well, it, it'll be crowded. <laughs> yeah, it'd be, and we have that issue too. Um, you know, we have crowding on our buses. So, yeah, I, I think those things have to be fleshed out. And I know, I know the new parking manager, Scott Lee, is is trying to be on top of that, uh, being new to the city. Um, I'm sure he's, it's a fast learning curve for him, but I think he's he's up to the task and. Uh, I mean, do, do, is it the TPC's responsibility to figure out where, that where those people are going to be, or, is, or it, and, and provide I, I, I mean, work with work with Metro to provide some kind of shuttle service from from outlying lots? I mean, what kind of ideas? Well, are, I mean, are you we, we've tried with? we've tried a, a parking lot shuttle when I first got back on the TPC back in 2008, and it didn't really work very well. But if if you know, I suppose that would be a consideration if we if that's 
the negotiated endpoint that there's going to be an 18-month gap, we're going to have to figure out either some satellite lots with some sort of shuttle service of some kind. But again, Metro, and if you want to get into this, Metro's at capacity, especially during the peak hours. It's just there are no buses. We have people that want us to add service our neighboring communities, and we can't do that because we don't have the buses. And then coupled with the fact that we don't have place to put the new buses if we couldn't afford them. So, Well, let's talk about the question of whether or not Metro is a victim of its own success. Fifteen million rides last year, an all-time record, uh, but you don't have enough room in your bus bar and you don't have enough buses. Uh, how many problems How many problems has success brought you? <laughs> well, it's brought some challenges. I'd rather have these than the ones that a number of communities are facing where they've cut services. We've been adding services with the blessing of the Common Council and the Transit and Parking Commission, so I'd rather have this kind of a problem, but it is a challenge. Not only are we at capacity, we've actually wedged in 55 buses more in our garage on Ingersoll and East Wash than it was designed for. It was designed for 160 buses. We have 215 buses. We just added what we told the community, our last extra peak hour bus for new service out at the new UW Hospital East. We were committed to that. We said we would be able to comply with that. But to get directly to the question, as we've been asked by Epic, if we were asked for this parking shuttle to provide additional peak hour service buses, we couldn't do that. It's one of the reasons we're looking for a satellite bus garage. It's one of the reasons we're looking for a regional transit funding source to expand more than our current state and federal funding allows for. Well, let's, let's talk about the prospects for a bus satellite facility and the potential for a TIGER grant, which stands for Transportation Investment Generating Economic Recovery, the USDOT TIGER grant. It's a competitive grant program, uh, $500 million available. You have put in an application for $35 million to, 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 help, to help support the $35 million right. bus satellite facility. Where does that application stand? Uh, we submitted it in June. It was due June 5th. We should hear in October. Uh, out of the $35 million to build that satellite facility out at Nakusa Trail, site of the former Cub Foods, 17 and a half of it would be federal funding if approved. I'm really happy to say that the Common Council, which is uh, accustomed to approving 20% local share, upped our competitive level from 20% to 50%. That was about a $10 million increase, and so we're seeking uh, $17.5 million of federal funding. If we get that and we build that facility, it does a couple of things. Number one, if we make no changes in the size of our buses and the kinds of services we provide, we could provide 70 buses out at Nakusa Trail. We also have right now, from the studies you pointed to earlier, an approval to look at bus rapid transit. Those typically are delivered with 60-foot uh, articulated or bendy buses, depending on the local description of them. And we could get 35 of those buses at Nakusa Trail and another 20, 40-foot buses. With that, then, we could expand and keep up with the demand from the university, from Epic, and for some of these other special services for parking shuttles and the like. That's what that grant is for. So the way you describe it, you would... Open up Nakusa Trail as a satellite, but maintain the East Washington. 
as I as I read the the transit development plan, the 2013 2017 transit development plan, it says the current garage, East Washington, is located in a prime transit oriented development redevelopment area, making an eventual sale and complete move a distinct possibility. So, I think I just heard you say something that I didn't understand. From, are you going to sell and move, or are you going to stay in in the on the old Sears site on East Washington? Yes. Oh, thank you. Uh, but in more detail, the mayor put together a long-range facilities planning commission. We're one of about a dozen departments that has space needs. Initially, we looked at, do we move the whole facility? Quite frankly, there's not enough to build a 300-bus garage someplace in terms of the land cost, in terms of the construction cost. So that committee looked at the alternative of, in the near term, over the next five or ten years, building a satellite garage, but that committee continues to look for parcels that would allow us to move out of East Washington. For all practical purposes, that part is not within the five-year plan. That's more likely to be 10, 15, or 20 years down the road. That's got to be a valuable parcel when it comes to redevelopment. I mean, that's going to help subsidize a lot of bus development. It certainly could. I haven't run through the numbers to know exactly how good it will be. Well, East Washington is booming. I mean, there are so many... Uh, projects uh, that are proposed, uh, you know, it is a very, it is a very va valuable piece of property right now, and it, it, uh, I can't see that it's, you know, it's going to double, triple, whatever. It's going to be amazing. Give, give me a, what's your gut feeling of, if and if so, when you'd be out of East Wash? Um, my gut level feeling is uh, 15 or 20 years from now, at the earliest. And the things that need to happen. Uh, are, include having a regional transit funding source to help with that because I don't see that coming from the state. I don't see that coming from the federal government. I see more and more transit systems are going to have to rely on their local units of government. We're one of the only states in the United States that doesn't allow the formation of regional transit authorities. I think that's beginning to change because conservative areas like Fox Cities are looking to form regional transit authorities. If that happens, we might be able to do something like that in 15 to 20 years. Wheel tax. Wheel tax. Well. Uh, and, and do you anticipate that you'd have one big mega garage, or do you have a garage on the west side, a garage on the east side, or something on north, something on south, so you would, so you would reduce deadheading? Now, I think being a deadhead is a great thing, but from a bus driving perspective, <laughs> it's not. Do, do you anticipate spreading them out or, or having one huge garage? Given that we uh, have plans for Nakusa and we hope that's successful, I see us having a max of two facilities, Nakusa sort of on the east side, so we're looking at parcels on other sides of town that are still close enough in to keep the deadhead cost low. And uh, the Tiger grant application, when will you find out and what happens if, uh, if the answer is no? We find out roughly in October. If the answer is no, we go back to looking at parcels potentially to build one facility or two facilities, as you suggest, one perhaps on one side of town, one on the others, so you're minimizing deadhead. I don't see us building three or four. I see max two, potentially one, if we hear no on the Nakusa Trail. When we say that the current facility was designed for what, 160 buses and now it's holding 215, how how can that be? If, if 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 it can fit 215, what does it mean to have, to say it was designed for 160? 
I took Gary and a group of folks to Champaign-Urbana and to Minneapolis-St. Paul to look at what a bus garage inside should look at like. One of the things you notice is wide lanes for turning. I was literally before this program showing some of our staff because this question comes up, what does that look like? I was showing them what does our garage look like at 3 in the morning as the last buses are coming in from campus and before the first buses go out. And it is so packed that not only do we not have a wide lane for turning, but in an area that should be uh, allowing just one bus through, we have three lanes of buses parked. And at the very end of the evening, that last lane is filled with buses that park to go out the next morning. That is simply an inappropriate way to have a bus garage set up. And imagine it's time-consuming to shuffle the buses. Yes. And there, you know, obviously some buses need maintenance. Some buses need to be cleaned. And to kind of put that all together in, in, the, in the limited space you have, uh, you know, I can't imagine. It's, uh, you know, it's just. And, and, and how deleterious is it for a bus to not live indoors? In this uh, weather, in the, especially in the winter months, if we were parking them outside, we would have more maintenance issues. And we would have to have block heaters to keep them warm so we could start up. Also, by having them outside and starting them up in the morning, they would need more idle time to warm up. And you can imagine 180 buses warming up in the morning near Jennifer Street. Well, on, on, on that frightening note, we're going to take another short pause for some important announcements. We're going to come back and talk more about transit and parking with Chuck Camp, the general manager of Metro Transit, and Gary Paulson, the chair of the Transit and Parking Commission. It's Access City Hall on the Madison City Channel. Please stay with us. We are this close. We are this close. To direct models. This close to making history. Of our We are this close. We are this close. We are this close. This close to changing the world. We are this close to making sure no child suffers a crippling disease ever again. We are this close to making history. We are this close to ending polio. Because we are this close to ending polio. We are this close to ending polio. We are this, this close. close to changing the world. This close. All we need is you. Is you. Is you. Is you. We are this close. This close. Be a part of history at rotary.org slash end polio. Most people probably think when it comes to horses, my passion is mainly for training and competition. But they're wrong. Growing up side by side with Australia's wildlife gave me a deep respect for every animal. And if I know my fans at all, I know you have the same passion for animals that I do. So I had to tell you about an organisation I believe in, one that makes a difference in the lives of animals all over the world, the Morris Animal Foundation. For more than 60 years, animal lovers like me have trusted Morris Animal Foundation to help animals worldwide enjoy longer, healthier lives. I am asking you to do the same. Visit morrisanimalfoundation.org to support animal health and welfare worldwide. Your gift today, mate, will give animals a healthier tomorrow. You and the animals you love will be glad you did.
Welcome back to the August episode of Access City Hall on the Madison City Channel. We're talking about transit and parking with Gary Polson, the chair of the Transit and Parking Commission, and Chuck Camp, the general manager of Madison Metro. Uh, Chuck, we referred, or I referred disparagingly in an earlier segment to an app that was used for these transportation network committees or companies, but Metro has an app that is much more public-spirited, much more in the public interest. Why don't you show us uh, how people can use an app to know how their buses are doing and, and uh, what, the, what the Metro uh, situation is? Sure, and this is one of my favorite ones. Uh, it was designed by a UW student in school who wanted to uh, use this as their class project. It's called Bus Radar. And all you do is you touch that one icon I just hit. It brings up a map of the community, and then using GPS, it zeroes in to where we are now. And so let's say I wanted to catch a bus at any one of these stops. All I do is I just touch the button involved, and all of those routes, 3, 4, 38, etc. that is real-time information based on automated vehicle locator equipment on all of our buses and GPS telling the customer when their bus will be coming by. And, w and if they, will they be able to know where that bus is going, or, or will they have to know the 3 goes here, the 19 goes there, or, or are there further levels of information within the app? If you know your route, this is an excellent one. If you're not sure how to get someplace, very quickly I could show you Google Transit, and what you do is you say it shows you where you are now, if I was to type in our bus garage on East Wash, it would tell me how to get there quickest by which bus over the next couple of minutes. Now, are these apps that Metro Transit has been involved in developing, or are these all private people who have decided, hey, I, I've got an idea for an app, and I'm, I'm going to put this together? It's really an interesting blending between our staff and private uh, app developers, or in this case of Bus Radar, a student at the university. That is, we have been working over the last 10 or 15 years with automated vehicle locator systems, using that data for our dispatchers and mechanics to know where all of our buses are. And then, as the technology developed, we heard from the community, why don't you make this data available to everyone so they can see where their buses are? Well, we didn't know how to do that particular app, didn't have the time and the resources to do it, and we started having students and private developers come to us and say, we'll develop the app if you will show us how to get access to your data, and that's what we've done. Now, is, is this in, Gary, you look like you... No, no, I, I, it's fascinating to me. I do, I do not have the capability with the phone that I have to do that, but I think long range as far as budgeting, we print a lot of paper copies of schedules. You know, you could tell me how many. It's a lot. And I don't know what kind of waste mm -hmm. we have with that uh, we have to recycle. But, you know, I could foresee uh, uh, in the future that possibly we'd have to uh, print very few of these schedules because people will have it in their hand. Well, when you say this is available to everyone, it's only available to can, someone who is, is, has the smartphone and is conversant with apps. Do you have that same information on display in the bus stops themselves? More and more we do. We have static information. That's going to have your scheduled information. Mm -hmm. We also have QR codes. So if you don't have an app or if you have an old clam-style phone, you can look at the stop number entered into any phone, and it will give you real-time information on the next buses coming through. So we are trying to realize there are people that don't have phones, that schedule information is up there, or who have older phones, and there's a way to get real-time information. 
so even I can be connected at some point, I suppose. Yes, this is good. <laughs> and, and and does anybody make any money out of this? How do you monetize something like this? Let me give you a specific example of someone who has helped us on this. His name is Greg Tracy, and on his own, not with any Metro funding, he has uh, figured out a way to work with us to get the data, and he is spending some of his own money, server money, to provide, if you will, a strain of data that other app developers use. He has done this as a community service. He has received at the Transit and Parking Commission a community service award because he realized this is a community service. I want to do this so more people can have access to these apps. You should at least give him a free pass. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, give him a bus pass. I mean, you know, give him those gold cards. Just, we don't give anything away for yeah. free, Stu. Um, <laughs> speaking of that, um, how goes the modernization effort for the fare boxes themselves? How are, you, how are you doing on getting a car that you can just, you know, put on a thing and not have to get, you know, put the coins in and put the dollars in? Be much quicker to just be able to put put a debit card on it. How's that going? It's going pretty well. A year ago, we installed new fare boxes that have that capability. Our first focus, given with limited resources, was just to make sure that we could mimic our current cash and magnetic swiping system. Next, we're looking at smart cards that can just tap rather than swipe. And believe it or not, that tap is quicker than swiping each time. And so we're about to pilot that in the next couple months. And then after that, we're going to look at using the smartphone ability where you either have a way of showing the driver a pass or you have a code on here that's recognizable by our new fare boxes, and you put it up to the fare box like you do when you're in the airport and going to board, and it recognizes that as a valid monthly pass, 10-ride pass or whatever, and you hear the same beep, and you get on the bus, and it subtracts a fare. That's happening in some communities, and it will happen here eventually over the next year or several years. Gary, do you have people on the TPC who are technologically conversant enough, or do you just have to take all this on faith from the people uh, who are making the presentations? Uh, generally on faith. I think many of the members, uh, we have some younger members that are probably conversant. Uh, we have uh, three former alders that uh, probably uh, are not as capable as, as these younger folks, but... Uh, you know, we do we do need translators sometime on on some of these aspects and apps. So, uh, another big ticket item we referred a little bit earlier to uh, bus rapid transit. Um, how goes the development of of that, and and when is that going to be fully operational? Well, it went pretty well. The another committee that Gary chairs, the Madison in Motion Committee or the Transportation Master Plan, looked at the bus rapid transit conceptual plan and endorsed it and sent that endorsement to the Common Council a couple of months ago. They endorsed it for further study. We have leftover planning money from the uh, Transport 2020 Commuter Rail Days that we were about to have to give back to the federal government, and they said, if you meet this timeline on your BRT, that is high-capacity transit. You can hold on to that $2 million. So we have met those timelines, and we're hoping to do a locally preferred alternatives analysis in the next couple of years. I think we're still five to eight years away from actual BRT, but at least we're moving, whereas a couple of years ago it was just a study and an idea. And what does the TPC have in mind when we talk about BRT? Well, I think uh, the the proposal, the plan that uh, the special committee came up with was basically a four-route system uh, hitting the uh, uh, um, trans uh, uh, 
going on major streets. Um, and uh, I don't recall whether we had a, a, a system of how long that would take, but it certainly would be quicker than our conventional routes. Um, I think the, the TPC endorsed the concept. I think there's some details that need to be worked out. For example, should buses go up State Street? Should they go up all the way to the square and go around the square? Because the important part, in my mind, of the BRT is the R, the rapid, uh, to get people downtown or wherever they're going as quickly as possible. I think that's that's our new source of uh, riders in my mind. Uh, we hopefully will keep the 15 million rides we, we have generated, but this, I think, will open the door for some civic-minded, uh, environmentally-minded people that get on the bus because it won't take them as long to get downtown. The, the, the transit development plan, the 2013-2017 plan, says among the medium to long-range planning, develop concepts for BRT and plan for its implementation in the next five to ten years pending the outcome of, of another study. Is the implementation supposed to be within the five to ten years or the development of the concepts for the implementation? I, the concept plan was part of the next five mm -hmm. years. That plan has been completed. So next it was to develop an implementation plan, and that's with the locally preferred alternatives analysis. That's the federal lingo that would allow us to keep $2 million and answer questions. Should this go around the square or the outer ring? Should this go on Sherman or Packers? Should this be on dedicated lanes or semi-dedicated lanes? That's the process that I hope we will start in the next year. And is that study to be conducted within TPC or, or I, TPC I, supplemented? I, I, I suspect that the detailed project will be a special committee. And there is the uh, uh, resolution that the council approved and that Gary's committee approved creates a regional steering committee for bus rapid transit. So it will not only have representatives from the city of Madison, it will have representatives from the state, from other surrounding municipalities, the county, and that committee will oversee this. Do you expect regional funding? To get right to the point, there's no way to build bus rapid transit without regional funding. Can, is, do you have the statutory authority to have regional funding? Not or, today. So, so even if you had the political will among Verona and McFarland and Fitchburg, you legally couldn't do it? Correct. Well, then, <laughs> that's something of a quandary, isn't it? I, my glass is half full on that, Stu. I think when I hear the mayor from Appleton, when I hear some of the uh, local officials in other parts of the state that are traditionally more conservative than Madison, urging their local legislators to pass regional transit authority, I'm encouraged the state assembly under Senator Petrosky's leadership last year passed a Fox Cities Regional Transit Authority bill. The full Senate then passed that bill, and then it died in the assembly. I think in the next couple of years, both branches will pass an RTA bill. Exempting Dane County from its provisions. Well, <laughs> I, uh, dollars to donuts, that's what's going to happen. I mean, come on. You have a point. <laughs> um, let's talk about um, beep beep. And, and, and the noise, the, the, the safety concern of, you, you had a couple of, of terrible tragedies with, with people dying in, in pedestrian bu bus accidents. You instituted, um, the, the, me the beeping mechanism to make sure that people were aware that the bus was backing up or turning. But that turned out to be unpopular. 
Uh, we actually, to put it mildly. Yeah. We actually did a number of things after a fatality accident in 2011. We moved the driver's side mirror in a position that as we looked at other transit systems, we realized that moving that mirror reduced the amount of space that was a blind spot. That was successful. As we looked at those other transit systems, we also saw some, not a lot, that were doing the audible turn signals. That has not been successful from the standpoint of community input. I do think it was a good program. We didn't factor in the community disruption as well as we heard after the Transit and Parking Commission meeting. We will continue to look for ways to uh, monitor blind spots, monitor where pedestrians are in the drivers right away. And the same technology that might allow one day Google to build a driverless car is available to alert the driver when there's something in his or her blind spot. So we're going to look at some of those technologies. And I think we'll achieve the same goal. It's just going to take us a little longer to get there. Why isn't there a univer uh, uh, industry standard on something as standard as where you put your mirror? Well, why, did the, why did that take an insight of, oh, look how these other mirrors are. We can change something to reduce the blind spot. Why, why, why was the bus built with, with that deficiency in it? If today I ask 100 drivers which is a better spot for the mirror, I will get 100 different answers. So if you go to 100 different transit systems, you will see all kinds of different ways where the mirrors are put. So what we rely on is our insurance company, the American Public Transit Association, the National Safety Council that actually researches accidents. And what we found is that the positioning of the mirror really did help. So even though some transit systems hadn't made that change, the ones that had been through some of the serious accidents that we did found it to be successful, so we made that change. Gary, was the TPC surprised at the reaction that you got? I think I was. I, I can't really speak for all the members. I think uh, there was an outpouring of, of uh, concern uh, about the noise. People that live right near a stop at, with a busy route system in front of them at all, you know, especially around campus, that you, you you know, off, off camera, you talked about uh, people that lived in um, Langdon and, and those areas of famous people. Uh, we, we had several people that lived in an apartment building uh, uh, come to the commission and talk about, you know, the, the incessant noise that they heard almost through the night. And it was a problem for them. Um, you know, it, it surprised me that there were so many people affected by it and how strongly they felt about it. I, I have to say, though, we, we have to balance the safety. And Chuck uh, presented uh, at a press conference a video of close calls that Metro drivers uh, encounter. And it was just really alarming. The people that have the buds in their ears, uh, their skateboards, their bicycles, the near misses. It's just, it's kind of a, you know, it's a frightening area out there. And I, I you know, I, would hate to be a driver uh, of a bus with, with those, those challenges. We, we speak a lot about the trauma on a police officer who's involved in an officer-involved shooting. Mm -hmm. If you're a police officer, you know going in that, that that's a possibility. It must be terribly psychologically damaging to a bus driver to be involved in an accident, especially a fatality. Do, do you have any kind of provisions for, for uh, any kind of uh, treatment or, or, you know, employee assistance program when something like that happens? We do, and I'm glad you bring that up because it's an outstanding program, and it has staff particularly designed to deal with 
extremely traumatic events like you're describing here. And so we've had employees access those services very successfully, and um, I'm glad we have it. It is the Employee Assistance Program, and they help us from everything from personal issues that are none of our business to ones that affect not only the employees that we're driving, but there were employees that day back in 2011 that were right on the scene, and were really, uh, you know, it impacts you. And the Employee Assistance Program is for those that uh, were directly involved and those indirectly involved that it just still impacted them a lot. So, yes, there's an Employee Assistance Program to help with that. On the uh, beep beep, did the, did the TPC get a chance to hear what that was, what that we, was we before had, you implemented we had, it? We had one uh, <laughs> registrant that uh, mimicked it, and I thought, very well. I mean, it, it, the, the volume and the intensity of it and... You know, I don't, it's probably, you know, you could go to City Channel and, and revisit that episode and hear that uh, uh, imitation. It was very good. I was quite impressed by the the sound of it. Um, we, we've got ju just a, a couple of seconds left. What's the, uh, other, other than financial pressures and pressures of too much success, what's the biggest crisis you've got looming in the next five years? I think those are it with the specific need that with funding, we can't rely on the state and federal government. We have folks that tell me you need to do more with the state and with the federal, and we'll try that. But I think the looming thing is to educate our local community that in the future our transit funding is going to shift to a heavily, more heavily local uh, base if we want to do the kinds of expansion for bus rapid transit. As I heard the Grateful Dead sing last week, the future's here. We are it. We are on our own. <laughs> My thanks to Gary Polson, the chair of the Transit and Parking Commission, and to Chuck Camp, the general manager of Metro Transit. My thanks to everyone here at Madison City Channel and to you for watching. This has been and will continue to be the August episode of Access City Hall on the Madison City Channel. I've been Stu Levitan. We'll see you next week or a month.